Hello again and welcome to another episode of Voices from SA. My name is Nicholas Claude. I hope you're keeping well and thanks for listening. My guest for this last episode of the year is the political analyst and researcher Ebrahim Fakir. He is based at the Johannesburg think tank ASRI. In this episode, Ibrahim and I discuss a few of the political events of the year. We looked at the general election and some of the outcomes and possible consequences still of that. Uh, the Zondo Commission, the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture and Corruption, and what that is telling us about, I suppose, the state of the nation and the state of our body politic. And also, we looked at corruption and mismanagement at state-owned uh, enterprises uh, against the background of the rolling blackouts uh, we've been suffering in the country over the last few weeks. Um, and so we are, we did look particularly at the power utility ESKIM in that context. Um, so, yeah, we, we touched on sort of the state of political parties, um, the agitatory uh, nature of the EFF in particular was something we spoke about also the kind of DA, the main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, being at a political crossroads but also uh, you know, some of the possible paths the ANC might take in the near future. Uh, we also in the context of not only state-owned enterprises but the public broadcaster looked at you know, what real transformation might look like um, in this country and had a little peep into 2020 and what that might hold so please enjoy now my chat with Ibrahim. Ibrahim thanks again. Um, we, uh, we chatted it was probably in the first quarter in fact it was just before the uh, election if I'm not mistaken and um, one of the things we spoke about then was the sort of weakness of the opposition and weakness of political leadership uh, in the country in general. Um, this time around, end of year, we just gonna we, we had a chat uh, a week or two ago, just um, sort of discussing what we, what we might include in this um, in this end of year uh, episode, the last episode of the year. We'll, we'll touch on the elections. We thought we'd look a little bit at the Zondo Commission and just what that is saying about our body politic, about our, our, our socio-politico uh, environment. Um, then we wanted to, we initially said, look at the BRICS, but I think we'll just look at the sort of world around us a little bit and how South Africa's trying to fit into mm -hmm. both uh, regional, subcontinental and international politics. We're on the Security Council now again, which is quite a significant um, moment but let's start now unfortunately after five days of rolling blackouts across the country um with the the state of the power grid and what does that saying actually about the how is that it seems a, a quite tragic metaphor for for the state of the nation um given the sort of euphoria of the immediate post-Silramaposa presidency and even, I suppose, post-election um, vibe 
uh, that uh, moved across the country. There was even some idea that we might even have some economic growth of some, not significance, but at least uh, according to or even above expectations. That now seems out the window. No, we are all powerless, including those uh, <laughs> who, who have power. <laughs> and I thought that I you mean, one power station is out of action completely, <laughs> apparently. Madupi is not functioning. Yeah, that's one. But the other is a little more basic, and that is that we've got wet coal, apparently. And, but, and I mean, that's, that's not a new thing, right? No, it ought not to be. But you'd also think that people who are in technical occupations at ESCOM would know that it's the rainy season and it's things things happen and for all these years we've managed to keep stockpiles of coal dry. Uh, how is it that you're unable to do so now? And you know, I mean, I'm afraid that I think there's something, I suspect something a little more sinister, I hate to say. The one is, I think the people who profit off this kind of nonsense because if you're supplying diesel or you're an alternative supplier, you can start hiking up prices. And there are all kinds of people in procurement who can profit off that because you take a kickback or cut or percentage, even if it's small or modest. That's Jeepers. one. That's that's one. And you know, this that is... That honestly hasn't crossed my mind, I have to say. Uh, Nick, this is true for local government, I hate to say. You know, sometimes when you hear about water outages, and they're complicated policy explanations for why you have water outages in certain places. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, the grand policy approach, I remember following from Mbeki and Trevor Manuel was to drive towards a budget surplus. And when you're driving towards surplus, you're curtailing expenditure in all kinds of places and municipalities become one of the hardest hit, right? And compounded to the corruption and the maladministration and the irregular expenditure and the expenditure on incorrect priorities and all of that, you also have people who find a flimsy excuse to cut spending on maintenance, on repair, on servicing, <clears throat> on cutting the key technical and other professional occupations which keep reservoirs, pipes, reticulation systems and so on going. Sewage and... Uh, right. So then what happens is those things break down. And who, who gets in? Because communities justifiably take umbrage. It's the guys who have water trucks, who deliver water. And there's often someone in a municipality which is connected to someone who owns some of these water trucks. And so when these things happen, they profit off. So it's not, un, it's not far from the realm of imagination that something similar could be happening at ESCOM. A slightly more conspiratorial take <laughs> is that uh, more conspiratorial yeah even more conspiratorial than that but i mean that's not con that's not conspiratorial that's okay. just pure that's just expanding on a on that, a reality yeah that's just that's just pure incentive based capitalism i mean it's you know market exchange and you can hike up prices and you can sort of come up with monopolistic prices even though you may not be a natural monopoly when you're supplying to escom but you know they're desperate the cold's wet <laughs> they need you diesel Keep the lights on. Or they need something else. Well, you while you load shit, rotationally you got to keep the lights on. So mm. you got to procure something, and those things can come at a premium. Uh, if I were there, if I had one of those things, of course I'd be hiking prices up. And uh, <clears throat> and if I were in ESCOM procurement, which unfortunately I'm not, though I wish I were, I'd also be kind of building in a kickback or something if I could. You know, it's just natural. It's it's the natural logic of capital and how capital functions. But it's also 
the breakdown of oversight. Because if this kind of thing's happening, and perhaps it's not happening, I'm just in the realm of speculation here. But it's not, again, not far-fetched. Given the breakdown of oversight and accountability, that means if some procurement officer or someone involved in procurement is able to do this kind of thing, it means someone in executive or board is not exercising the requisite oversight that they're supposed to. Because that's the only way you can get a get away with it. But the more basic, even if we forget all this nonsense speculation, and though it sounds conspiratorial, it's not. Even if we disregard all of what I'm saying, it still points to poor oversight in the way in which the utility is being governed. Because notwithstanding all of its other problems, debt and so on, the reality is that you are having, even if you accept the explanation, you're having problems with delivery because someone didn't do what they're supposed to do. No one is prepared to take responsibility for it. No one's prepared to answer the questions which are being asked. But more basically, no one's prepared to ask the questions inside the utility at executive or at board level. And I think that's the basic problem. So mm. that's where we are. And this is the story of our political governance and economic governance system overall, unfortunately. Because, I mean, the, 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 the figures, I don't have them at my fingertips, but the figures that have been mentioned, that have been the amount of money that's been pumped into Eskim with cost overruns and the buying of, of diesel when the, the grid um, comes under pressure is just flabbergasting. On top of it, you have this, and I was just reading. I think it was in the it was um, in the Daily Maverick uh, this morning. Stephen Curtis was just looking back, you know, to the nineteen ninety eight white paper on power that the grid was going to collapse in two thousand and seven if something wasn't done. That was one uh, interesting little moment there. But he also reminded me in that article of the one billion rand that McKinsey had sort of just casually paid back um, without too much fuss for just overcharging the, the, the organization. And that's been happening because they're feeling the heat, right? All of the consulting and management firms are feeling the heat after the collapse of KPMG or near collapse of KPMG. But remember McKinsey, Bain, at SARS, all of them have been implicated in this. Now, we shouldn't be surprised because, I mean, we've overblown the reputation, the efficiency, the effectiveness, the professionalism, the sheer expertise of these guys because we believe, oh, they're so, all, they're all so, so clever because they're all at management consulting firms or they're all at, at kind of audit risk and advisory firms. But in fact, they lack basic ethics. Let's just be blunt. So McKinsey is not the only one who quietly went and paid back. And they're paying back because they're feeling the pressure. And before before they get the heat on this specific thing, they're going back. Because remember, they're getting heat on all kinds of other things. Not only at ESCOM, at Prasa, Transnet, SAA, Bain and Company with regard to SARS and their local executive resigned the 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 philosopher who's now become a management consultant he basically resigned because of the lack of ethics of of the company and he was one of the chief guys in south africa so clearly they've got massive reputational issues based purely on their ethics 
But we got to ask questions about the politicians and the people who are placed by politicians at board level to make executive decisions, who buy the advice that these guys dispense. And remember management consulting firms or other consulting firms, I think in the business of devising solutions which create further problems hmm. or that you retain them. <laughs> it's again the logic of, you know, let me fix what's broken so I break something else so you can keep me to fix that too. Well, you hear about those pharmaceutical companies who create a drug and then there's a side effect, so they create a drug to get rid of the side effect. Yeah. No, I know. This, I'm, I'm being terribly conspiratorial this morning, but I'm not... You know, I'll, I'll You're get about to, to go I'll on get, holiday. I'll, I'll, get to, I'll get to the actual point. So, so here's the thing now. These guys dispense this advice. There's people politically appointed, all the politicians themselves, people at board level, people, the executives who buy the advice they give. But let's look at the political decision which was made slightly later. In 2003, after the whole white paper process on, on power and generation and transmission and so on, and remember the debates about splitting ESCOM into generation, transmission distribution, and distribution yeah. was happening back then. But in 2002-2003, the Mbeki administration was told in Parliament in not so uncertain terms that a massive investment is going to be needed in ESCOM, not only to build new power generation capacity, but also to allow alternative energies to feed into the grid and so on. So this debate mm. about IPPs and so on is not a new one. It's mm. not even a decade old. It's more than a decade and a half. Now, in 2003, hmm. whatever the conventional technologies were, the Portfolio Committee on, um, on, on, on Energy was told this is the amount of investment which is going to be required in ESCOM. It is going to be required for these following purposes. And, of course, I'm not going to remember all of the detail. But the point is that the politicians at that time in the majority party were under instructions from Mbeki that we yeah. are not going to spend money on this because we are cutting spending. So that's the source of your problem. It goes I'm back afraid. to a budget surplus. Yep. Or, or goes back toward the drive for a budget surplus at mm. all costs, at any cost. Even though at that time, because of the nature of the economy, uh, modest levels of growth, you may have had a growth which was not employment creating or distributing, but there was growth and you could afford to do a little more than the state was prepared to do, but they were prepared to drive for a surplus at all and any cost. So just let's uh, just finish uh, up this point now. I mean, it's, 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 it's a cat catastrophic kind of situation, isn't it? And I'm just um, wondering what your speculation is in terms of general economic outlook and how that's going to now impact um, say rating agencies on the one hand and this 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 um, the, the 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 ever amazing foreign direct investment the the mantra of foreign direct investment that's going to save us all what what what, what do you see over the next couple of years now it's not going to, but let's let's. I think let's Nick first um, perhaps dispense with a few canards which run around, and one of those is that FDI, foreign direct investment, is the big savior of societies and economies, and they're actually not, because even at the highest level, I don't think you exceed um, fifteen percent of foreign direct investment of GDP, fifteen percent of GDP 
even in 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 highly sophisticated economies mm. um highly developed ones your growth has to be, be stimulated internal. by local mm. and domestic capital and domestic capital formation and investment um so of course fdi helps and and of course you want to attract fdi through not always fixed investment because i mean fdi is not always prepared to sink large amounts of money particularly in risky countries so mm. they go for much more hot money so buying things in yeah. equities they want to be able to move quickly yeah bonds mm-hmm. equities and so on not actual in uh, not not kind of organic infrastructural yeah or not hard sunk investment projects right? right. but but they can and they do because think about all of the big uh, not just vehicle manufacturing but chemicals uh, fcmg fast mm. moving cons- consumer goods so on people build factories plants and so on So they do do that but they don't do that to the scale which is going to suddenly bolster and kick massive growth that needs to happen through domestic investment in manufacturing mm. in production and so on now if if people trust Ramaphosa and the remember the big executives were all championing in during the election for people to um vote for him and I'm surprised you didn't say when you that when you made your intro that actually I got much of the speculation on what the results were going to be fairly accurately well we're coming to <laughs> that but be that as it may um <laughs> now that you don't want to give me credit uh be that as it may the president was championed by all the executives and i think it was the wrong decision because the executives must champion people politically you want to champion someone politically put your money where your mouth is and invest in the country in the in the economy mm. create the jobs yeah cut the excessive bonuses cut the long term incentives and the short term incentives now again you know when we say things like this people think you're a raging socialist and you're mad because none of these big executives with highly high level skills quite sophisticated highly mobile are going to stay here because you can't incentivize them but come let's be honest you can only drive one car at a time you can only live in one house at a time you can only eat uh, as many meals per day so no one is saying don't have the incentive the share don't earn a good the salary excessive, the you, you know even good salaries are great even the mm. bonuses and so on it's the scale and the extent now if you are so committed then cut some of that and use that to cross subsidize entry level jobs because there is no other way of reducing unemployment in the short term you're not suddenly going to upskill someone uh, to be able to do different things if they've lost their job we've got a bunch of people who are literally unemployable who've never been in the formal sector who've never mm. been in a formal market economy who've never been in a formal job so they're unfamiliar with the routines of formality those people are never going to be ready to be in one in six months time so you've got to cross subsidize entry-level jobs so that you start to inculcate them in this right and what that would do over time is that and not a very long time it will stimulate it will start to stimulate demand mm. uh, in the economy now even if you don't have productive capacity and you're not making things locally in your, in your import of course it's going to have an impact on your current account deficit because you're going to be importing more and you might have small inflationary pressures and so foreign exchange issues you'll have foreign exchange issues and local inflationary pressures because you the price of things are going up because there's greater demand right mm. but that will be if you if you if people if greater numbers of people are employment 
it will spur productive capacity because demand will 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 will, will still be reliant on imports but you then will have successful policies of import substitution you will start incentivizing people to manufacture and produce locally you will have people start doing all kinds of other things even if it means that they key in eventually to the fourth industrial revolution if escom can get its act in order <laughs> um i was actually uh, talking to jane duncan uh, at uj she's got a lot to say about the fourth industrial revolution and she's not I would have to say particularly excited about about that but uh, that's a separate thing one I, I want to just go back to that point about sort of domestic investment and local companies or or even not locally based multinationals and the role they have to play because that has something I mean again I don't have the sort of figures at my fingertips but apparently they're sitting on a lot of cash um a lot of local large industries or large large companies and Yeah, I think that's an interesting point you raise about yeah, you know, on the one hand rah rah for for Cyril Ramaphosa as the white knight is going to save the country and in fact I suppose hopefully just give them uh, a tax break along the way um without actually fully committing or or you know what is their commitment to the the growth of of democracy uh through a a thriving economy. And very yeah. low i think because yeah. their commitment is ultimately to themselves and their company now you'll hear the mantras about well we can only be successful if the society is successful therefore we want the society to be successful but they're not prepared to do anything to make the society successful mm. what they are prepared to do is the kind of glitz glamour and ritzy stuff like ceo sleepouts and that kind of nonsense or mm. or corporate social investment mm. now i'm Mandela not, day and i'm not against i'm not against any of those things mm. uh, those things are all necessary all kinds of palliative charitable acts um if you want to call it that are necessary in a society to kind of stem the tide of immediate problems but there has to be some kind of structural interventions and this mm. is where they're not prepared to make the sacrifices and the investments to see the long-term sustainability not just of the country but of their own businesses mm. because you know well, you exactly you think yeah yeah you can have short-term profit stockpiling and accumulation now in the short term but what happens in 40 50 60 years when your company still needs to operate in this kind of market so mm. surely you want to develop the market that's um, you would think yeah you exactly. think that that's in there but i mean the short termism and particularly when the world is moved towards what you would call techno finance capitalism where the mode of exchange and extractive capacity is dependent not so much on production as it was in mercantile or in other forms of capitalism this kind of capitalism is highly dependent on shares futures yeah trades and so These on sort of financial uh, constructs yeah which are not which are not real and not based on real on actual value mm. of things so there has to be a shift uh it has to be a shift towards something slightly more tangible around what backs up value mm. uh in the economy and based on this myth or the myth of value you have things piggybacking on it so the myth of the value of of currency of exchange value of your 
of your of your local currency is similarly plagued to a similar fiction so if you have the two fictions which are the things that drive accumulation then i'm afraid you don't have a fairy tale you do have a fairy tale but it's a fairy tale only for those people who are in that in circuit yeah or mm. in that in that loop those mm. of us in the middle class we can live somewhere between the two because on the one hand our pensions our savings um our retirement annuities our medical aids our insurances all of that in the financial sector props up that system mm. on the other side of the divide to live our everyday daily lives you are dependent on actual hard production of real goods of real services uh from which we derive benefit all able to live our lives and the super wealthy also do that but remember they do it at a scale differently and much higher and at the scale at which they're doing it they can only afford it if the fictitious value is the thing that's putting value in their pocket hmm. i was just thinking a quick aside on that csr csr you know cor- corporate social responsibility i was sort of speculating i think i was probably just having a discussion with myself um about maybe the formation of a sort of national csr fund so that money's kind of more directed uh, to to kind of established needs that are perhaps decided by a by a com- various committees that include i don't know uh, civil society trade unions business and government i mean is that is that because it all seems to be far too piecemeal for me you know dropping off some computers at a school and just sort of leaving them in a room i've seen those rooms um as opposed to okay we're going to provide computers to all the schools who's who's involved sap ibm or that sort of okay that it sector um and ha- create a proper kind of structured approach to mm. providing uh, as you said that palliative um, call it charity if you want but it it i, I don't know it just somehow feels it would be a bit more you'd you'd make sure that there is an it teacher who's got a salary to run the computers oh. at that school that's something more productive uh, and power as well and power. <laughs> it makes a lot it makes a lot more sense but built into that system or any of these corporatist type arrangements is everything will depend on who sits on that governing body or who sits on that board yeah, which no, makes the decisions of yeah. where the the requisite investments are now you can construct i think fairly productive cooperative structures but there's nothing that stops individuals corporate social responsibility or corporate social investment programs from being equally successful in yielding tangible benefits so things like building schools labs providing books paying for teachers um subsidizing school transport providing meals all those kind of things i think do matter and they build sustainability over time the problem is that we're doing too little of it firstly and secondly much of those cost absorb what you're giving in corporate social responsibility or csi or whatever you want to call it much of those costs are absorbed by actual administrative management and operational mm. costs and very little mm. actually goes down into the tangible goodies which yeah. are, which are delivered so that balance first needs to change secondly yeah it's a nice idea to pool the funds but the pooling of the funds is again creating the dangers of centralization when once it's centralized everything is dependent on how good or bad the people who make the decisions mm. are going to be yeah. and given how we fight about who 
those people in influence, command and control are, you can create a new site at which people will create will, a new site of conflict mm-hmm. over which people mm-hmm. are going to find, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, something to fight about. Yeah, it was just a, a speculation. But it's a nice it is a nice thought. Um, I hope someone listens. Ibrahim, <laughs> <laughs> um, the elections. It seems, I mean, to me, the elections seem to be a an indication, and it was something that you alluded to when we we spoke last. This the, the the lack of a proper opposition in the country. It also just made me wonder what the ANC would have to do wrong in order to be voted out of power. Nick, good question, except that you are ignoring two things. The first is that in 2016, the ANC did lose power through the shenanigans of themselves and the opposition amongst themselves they lost power again in 2019 i mean they the opposition lost that power back to the anc literally a few days ago right and i'll explain mm. this but don't ignore the fact that in 2016 the anc lost, about the lost power in the metros yeah johannesburg pretoria nelson mandela bay cape town which they never had and ekuruleni the East Rand, with uh, what that mayor now calls an aerotropolis, because there's a there's, <laughs> there's, a airport, airport. And there's an airport economy <laughs> or travel economy which is centered there. It actually makes sense, but anyway, they almost lost that too, right? That's hanging by a thread. So they so even though you didn't lose complete control of the country, you've lost influence over the major drivers of growth, development, redistribution. That's where it happens. Mm. So you've lost that influence. Compare Britain 1979 when Callaghan was replaced by Thatcher mm. and Labour had lost influence over the north, over the mines, the mines were shutting down, you know, kind of economic collapse. Labor the miners strike then after that, 80, 81, right? 81, right, late, mm. and then it gets, it, yeah. And at the simultaneously, so they lose the influence over the northern working solidly working class areas they also lose influence over the bankers and the bankers are st- and remember the bankers and traders start to emerge because that's when derivatives trading uh, futures trading that kind of stuff becomes big in the 80s and there's a whole explosion of the financial sector brokers so they lose influence over those guys over which they had some kind of influence and what happens? You lose national power. 2019, the ANC, on the back of 2016, was in fact, though it won the election, was the biggest loser. They were saved only by two things. A, the charisma and the credibility that Ramaphosa himself brought to the ANC, number one. And number two, more substantially, and here the ANC can take some credit, is the legacy of having done the extension services of the big welfare state. So basic services, free education, whether the the capriciousness of free higher education on the back of Zuma almost being voted out at the mm. at the at the Nazarite conference. 
that notwithstanding, all of the other things, the solidarity approach to the economy and redistribution through welfare, I think stood the ANC in good stead. Hmm. So I think we mustn't diminish the fact that people actually do view some of the things done by the ANC as good, sure. as progressive, hmm. as valuable, as having changed their lives. Because look for you and I, perhaps not having access to a public health clinic anymore and we now have to go private, maybe not such a biggie, as much as of a biggie of someone who never had any hope of accessing any of these things and now can do so. Mm. They get free medicines, you go to a clinic, your kid can go to a school, you have feeding schemes, you have subsidized transport, you have kind of social wages, you've got... Uh, RDP housing, you've got mm. social housing. Now, of course... it's no, good to put it in context. Yeah. It's not... Those things are not great. There's corruption which riddles it. But you know what? A social housing and RDP housing scheme on this scale, the proportion of corruption of a project of that nature, though corruption's bad, is not as big as one would have imagined. Mm. So I think those things do actually have a tangible change in the way in which people perceive who is doing what for them. Interesting. Now, yeah. of course, the ANC went into this election on the back, as I've explained, of losing 2019, losing influence over the core. Losing 2016. Era. I mean, 2016. So they go into 2019 having lost in 2016, the metros. They go in on the back of a poorly performing economy, contraction. They go into the back with rolling power cuts, blackouts. They go into this um, with massive scandals, with all of the stuff emerging from the Zondo Commission, mm. the manipulation of public institutions, state capture, and the two different forms, the one which is the Posasa type, <clears throat> which is about inflating tenders, prices, collusion, so mm. on. Bribery. We'll talk a bit more in right. detail on that. And the second is the kind of Gupta type, which is undermining sovereignty, abusing the people in authority to make those decisions. So... The ANC goes into this election with all of this becoming public knowledge, a denuded criminal justice system. And then Ramaphosa comes in with his personal credibility, charisma, greater ratings for him as a person than the ANC, and saves mm. the ANC. And the second thing is the ANC's reputation is saved by what it has done in government. So it's not this stuff that people popularly talk about, ah, it's a liberation dividend, it's just a liberation party, people are emotionally tied to this. No, mm. I think it's something rational. Concrete. There's something concrete. It's entirely rational for a voter to think this is what these people did in government, notwithstanding all of the problems. Mm. And isn't it interesting mm. that as there's greater amounts of social mobility in the South African social space, and as there's changing class structure, as there's changing attitudes and perceptions and demands among South Africans, concomitant with them, comes the fact that they view politics differently. So they still like the ANC. They might eat, but they are prepared to vote for a range of other parties. And you go and look at any township voting pattern or majority voting station, majority station voting stations where majority of voters are black or African. And you'll see the diversity of political choices that they make, mm. including, importantly, the fact that they simply don't turn out to vote. And they don't turn out to vote, not because they don't like voting, but in part because they believe, ah, I'm not sure we want to vote for any one of these options. And importantly, because of the problems they see emerging in the political system, they don't trust. So a greater amount of mistrust and distrust 
of the political system as a whole, of government, of public institutions, but more importantly, of political parties as organizations. So there's a kind of contradiction there in a way. In part, yes. Um, I'm just interested when you say, you know, you talk about the range of political options. Um, you did, um, we did discuss the sort of failure of the main opposition parties, the DA and the EFF, to, in the sort of post-2016 era, given that they did have some sort of political base in those large centers, however that balance of power was was manifested, um, there seemed to be a real struggle for either the DA or the EFF to actually come up with a coherent um, alternative to the ANC. They couldn't because it's structured in the DNA not to do so, and it could, it could have been different. So we've got to understand each one of those constituents' parties as they are and for who they are. So the DA was caught in this purely oppositional mold. Everything we do will be to oppose the ANC, but more importantly now, it is to also depose the ANC, and we'll do so at any cost. Right. So in 2016, the any cost means getting into bed with the most unlikely of bedfellows. Now that's not in it of itself the death knell of any attempted coalition or working together because not a coalition is a minority government, right? You can have disparate, even informal coalitions, parties with completely and fundamentally divergent mm. ideologies. They mm. can work together if mm. they can construct a common minimum agreement. Yeah. So let's take the DA. The DA is in this mode of opposition and deposition of the ANC at any, at any cost. Whatever it takes, we're going to do it. Even if it means we've got to denude our own identity, who we are, what we stand for. And that then incepted all kinds of internal debates into the DA about who they are, what they stand for, what mm. their identity mm. is, what they want. And <laughs> we saw all of that come to a head after the election. Yeah. But that explains the DA. Now they get into partnership with this EFF. And the EFF, we've got to understand the EFF for who it is. The EFF, for all of its rhetoric, is actually just a plain, simple destabilization force. It's a destabilization force because the people who or the people who lead it because I think there's some people who in it who genuinely believe they, they're genuine believers but I think for the most part, for most in the leadership this is merely an a vehicle for acquisition right? and the way and the route into that is to destabilize everything and everyone that you touch so you went through a process in which you mucked up parliament and you mucked up and you tried to muck up the executive by finding people that you specifically target, whether it be Naledi Pandor, whether it be then first championing uh, Praveen Gordon and now vilifying him, then finding public servants to vilify. Remember Mamoniat from Treasury who was mm. targeted over several weeks for his appearances at uh, the Portfolio Committee on Finance. But why should opposition, so if you've done the executive and you're busy with destabilizing the ANC through being the ANC's official gossip and, you know, finding information and tweeting it from place to place, 
feeding into its own fractures, already latent fractures, and then overlaying it with the gossip that you come out with. Why leave the DA alone? Because you want to get certain things from the DA. And to the extent that they were successful in getting some of those things in Johannesburg, for example, every rent, the vehicle leasing company. Hmm. That didn't end up leasing any vehicles. Or couldn't provide what it's supposed to provide, either yeah. the services or the goods. Uh, property contracts in Tswane with Glad Africa, they weren't getting it right in Nelson Mandela Bay, so that municipality collapsed way before. So the EFF's in this game of playing this destabilizing thing. And isn't it curious to you... And just seeing what they can get as a cut along the way. Yeah, well, seeing what they can get as a cut along the way or getting into positions Hmm. and building your political profile that way. But the building the political profile is not about genuine conviction and belief. Hmm. It's the mask to being in office so that you're being in office to do other things like influence government procurement, spending, tenders, contracts, and so on. Which is why, you know, it's not untoward for them and I'm not being purely I'm not being a pure moral philosopher saying there must be fundamental ethics which guides who they take money from and who they partner with etc but here there's complete and wanton disregard for who's who and who's what and what you say because it's isn't it funny that one day you can champion a guy like Praveen Gordon and the very next day you can vilify him and the same is true for a whole bunch of people so at some stage they loved Ramaphosa now they hate him and I'm sure there will become a point again where they will love him mm-hmm. so you can't you, there's nothing to trust here and isn't it curious to you that it mimics the same kind of colonial mentality of divide and rule mm-hmm. undermine indigenous institutions these institutions were not imported to South Africa from outside these were constructed designed the rules and procedures and everything were designed by South Africans these are indigenous institutions but they're undermining our own institutions they're dividing society you're destabilizing organizations you're destabilizing more importantly institutions Mm. and you know people say look at how bad politics are across the world and they are but those countries have durable public institutions who've taken root in society and they can continue to serve the social function that they do in our context we're a bit more flimsy when those institutions are destabilized, particularly by political parties, it has an impact not on them because they are in a relative elite where they can get their goods and services elsewhere, even overseas if they have to. It's us, the ordinary citizen, and the poorer below us, hmm. and the precariat who are left completely at sea because the public services can't function because the institutions are too unstable. Hmm. What have you, um, since the, I mean, just in terms of the, the body politic. Let's just talk about um, just the, the the political parties. Uh, what would you say has been the most significant kind of political event uh, since the uh, elections uh, earlier on this year? Oof, I, you know, I don't, I don't. I mean, the rugby World Cup. I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Even for those 48 hours of joy. Even if it was just for that, and even if the EFF tried to poo-poo the idea, because, you know, what it showed was how discreetly built, well-thought-out social transformation programs can create... It's not a moment of success. If all of the interventions which were made in Siakolisi's life 
for example because you know everyone knows now his social history came from a home there was domestic violence he had to be brought up by a grandmother there was then an intervention that he got to a nice elite school and that's when his life started to change and then he had personal convictions and application and that's how it was successful but if you take the other black Springbok rugby players who came from similarly disadvantaged background perhaps not all of them came from um Difficult personal circumstances in the immediate family life, but their structural but still poverty were coming from that, right? So they may have had the cushioning of a personal family life, but the dire structural circumstances in which they grew up shows that when you have successful programs of transformation, of change, of expanding the recruitment of so rugby coaches or scouts who go out looking in areas which are not traditional, that's real transformation. Mm. It actually has a tangible, yieldable benefit. People mm. who come from an underclass who you would never hope to see in places like these or achieving the kinds of success that they do. And that's the lesson. And that's why that was significant for me because everything else seems like it's a bit of smoke and mirrors. Now, I don't want to be churlish about the president's labor summits, investment summits, uh, attracting investment and so on. Well, Africa. Those are all important, and I think we will see some benefits emerging from them. But they are about a particular kind of elite compacting mm. happening at certain levels. Of course, they have an impact on society. So I'm not saying it's all rubbish or it's all nonsense, but it is a bit of smoke and mirrors if we're talking about real substantial social change. And that, for me, the example of that came through the World Cup. So I'm, so I'm afraid, I, you know, if you're talking about political moments, I can't think hmm. of any uh, mm. beyond the election. Perhaps the realignment which happened over the last week and we still need to figure out discreetly about what's going on because think about this. Joburg, uh, the DA elevated its 2% loss and the loss of five seats in parliament as a major catastrophe. So they had a whole kind of internal arrangement, rearrangement of their deck chairs, the leader resigns, the Joburg mayor resigns, uh, and the, they suddenly go into an elective conference. They've got a caretaker leader. That's significant and it's important mm. because... I think they now come to realize how the opportunistic and parasitic decision they made around partnering with the EFF has actually come back to bite them. Hmm. That their flimsy and parasitic parachuting of leaders, black leaders, into positions in which they were inappropriate actually has come back to bite them. Sure. How their inability and how this singing along, and again it's completely opportunistic, when Musim Maimani says, no, we'll double social grants, we'll have a policeman on every street, those of you who are called liberals in that party, surely you know that this doesn't work. Why don't you rein in your leader? No, they go along with this stuff. So they are equally as much to blame for the dilution of who the DA are and, and how, where they stand. So I think that's significant, that there has been the elevation of what was a minor crisis into a full-blown catastrophe mm. and then deal with it, not as a crisis, but as a catastrophe, comes up with these monumental changes. Now, I mean, not everything's lost. They can still recover it, but it will depend on how they go about doing so. So interestingly, I think that as a political moment is important because it signaled some kind of realignment. But it also means that the EFF is now left a little bit at sea because their protectors, for example, in Joburg, 
Otswane are no longer there and they've now got to figure out where they're going to fit in mm. it looks like they're partly fitting in might side with a portion of the ANC unfortunately if the ANC if it's more recidivist parts believe that the roots to regaining what they may have lost is to side with the EFF for two reasons a because we regain power but b we neutralize these kids or we neutralize these guys in the lo- it may be good for the ANC. So rationally, it makes sense for the ANC, but it doesn't make sense for society. Mm. And if the ANC is interested in a long-term, sustainable future for the country, which is slightly more stable, rather than this rambustious politics, which is what we've become accustomed to, then the only way out is to find some workable arrangement and accommodation between a portion of the DA and a portion of the ANC. Mm. That doesn't mean that you've got to do what uh, John Stiernazen suggested. That uh, Well, he didn't quite suggest it. I think we, it was misreported. He said we won't be simply opposing for the sake of opposition. Uh, and perhaps that's, that's the right, the prudent approach. That doesn't mean that you will not be in opposition or that you won't conduct oversight. But it does mean that your approach to what the ANC does needs to change slightly. Mm. Uh, so that's one hope. The second, and it's, it's, it's strange to me that no one talks about this. Unfortunately, the political parties seem to think that this democracy is all about them not about the citizen. <laughs> so it's all yeah. inward looking, it's all parochial, it's about their internal fights, and they want to project that onto the society, and they want society su- to support that stuff. And the evidence is clear. Over many successive elections, look at COPE, look at the DA in this election, and look at the ANC in this election, and the ANC in 2016 in the local government elections the greater the amount of friction and fractionalism, not factionalism, but fractionalism inside the party, the less likely your voters are to want to support you. The greater propensity to voters to support you is if you are slightly more coherent, if you seem... That doesn't mean you must be homogenous. There's a difference. Mm. They're not saying everyone must be of like mind or there mustn't be internal debates or there mustn't be internal fights. But if the internal fights look like they are destabilizing the organization and people are literally working only to undermine each other the propensity for voters to stay committed or wedded to that political formation recedes but that's why i found that sort of anc result in in 2019 quite quite strange in a way because the anc does seem to be so terribly divided i mean i don't know who's you don't kind of know who's in charge there anymore, in a way. Yeah, look how much they lost. So mm. the benefits of the Ramaphosa or Ramaphoria with the benefits of what the ANC has historically done, plus the liberation dividend, if you want to include that, is what carried them. But if you look at it on aggregate overall, if you wanted to identify winners and losers in the election... You could actually say the DA was at stasis because, you know, 1.5%, five seats loss. Uh, it's, it's a deal, but it's not a deal breaker. Mm. But the ANC lost. A good, a good substance. I mean, they dipped below the 50, the, the 60% thing. They had, 50, they had 58%. So they're still a majority, biggest mm. party, big support. But 
uh, you've crossed the thre- psychological threshold of below 60 60%. Mm. Now, the other thing people and people would say, "Oh no, Ramaphosa is the guy who presided over this." Well, actually no. It's Zuma who presided over this. So if you look at ANC performance election upon election, the decline is cumulative and compounded because in every election they've shed 3 to 4% and this started since 2009 under Zuma's watch. So 2009 2014, 2019, in between was 2016. And the losses in each election were successive and compounded. Hmm. So so there's a historical trajectory hmm. for how there's loss of support's going on. So it's not surprising. In fact, that's why I was saying, if you look at what voters say, so COPE looks like it completely imploded, but its implosion started when the major divisions started to come out in COPE. The DA shows it's not quite sure who it is. There were internal fights in the DA. Are we an ANC light or are we an alternative to the ANC? Its voters decided, now stuff this. Plus the fact that we don't like some of the identity politics you are now engaging in. We're going. To, some of us are going to the Freedom Front. The ANC in 2016, remember Tswane? People were out in the streets because they didn't like who the mayor was. There were massive internal ructions. In the lead up to 2017, the debate between the RETers, or reti- not retired, but radical economic transformation advocates and the others, mm. showed the massive division. And what happened? In 2016, when they showed huge divisions, they lost in those metros. In the 2019 election, because of the internal fights, they lost support in that election. So coherence or a semblance of coherence does matter. That doesn't mean homogeneity. Mm. That doesn't mean no internal debate. That also doesn't mean no internal fights. But if those internal debates are destabilizing, then voters have shown in all three examples that they don't like that. And I think the EFF will, will face that depending on how its conference this week uh, will play out. Um, uh, if it can maintain the degree of coherence, it might pick up a little more support. But I, I think that this, you know, the next election or two, they will have reached their ceiling. Hmm. Especially if Ramaphosa, through the state, can start to correct some of the problems. Yeah, uh, that means the the ceiling for the for the for 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 the EFF. Everything for them in the future will depend on what happens in the ANC and what a post-Ramaphosa ANC starts to look like. Um, Talking about uh, resolving issues, uh, the Zondo Commission, um, one could see as as an attempt to, by the ANC to sort of give some account, or at least the government to give some account of, do you want to pick it up? To give some account of the of the last ten years, um, I mean, I suppose in a sort of global political context, it is quite an amazing thing that we are that we are witnessing this this um, never ending litany of destruction, um, both uh, financial and institutional. What do you see as? Most, I mean, how do you reflect on the Zondo Commission so far? I mean, it's it's still to do its work and and produce a report. But, I mean, 
what do you, what do you sort of what do you think about what you've heard? I think you've hit on something really important about the context and about the reality that South Africa took a brave step in allowing this to happen. So some would say, but the U.S. is having impeachment hearings out in the public and so on. And that's true, but none of it is prepared to go into a discovery of the skullduggery, if you will, of what happened over the last 10 years. So that is certainly brave, because the ANC might in fact be doing itself a disservice by agreeing to this. And remember, it's not yeah. Ramaphosa who started the Zondo Commission. Of course, Zuma had to be forced into it, <laughs> but he was the person who proclaimed that this thing was going to sit, right? So it's not all... Um, so the ANC has to take some credit here. But I think we must also be realistic about what we can expect to come out. And I am not sure... Uh, I think we've discussed this before, that my view is that I think much of the resources which have gone into the Zondo Commission should in fact have been gone to bulking up NPA or the NPA SARS or investigative capacity, detective mm. capacity mm. and so on. Mm. Now I understand the yeah. argument that says but those organizations were so compromised that if you threw all of that money at them at that time you're throwing good money after bad uh, kind of precisely or you would be throwing mm. good money to bad people who were going to continue doing bad people and you would have incentivized mm. the even greater fight amongst those people. Um, you know, so, so, so I'm a bit at odds with that, but what I am certain about is that I don't think the Zondo Commission is going to come up or there will be some people who will be prosecuted, but I don't think it's the big names that we expect to see. It won't be the silver bullets. And it won't be because for two reasons, some of which I alluded to previously. Because I think that the two forms of state capture, or out and out corruption if we can call it, are of different kinds. And let me explain what I mean. So I already alluded to the fact that the Bosasa type was about price fixing, price mm. inflation, yeah. collusion, sometimes open bribery. Now, that open bribery is prosecutable, right? The collusion between politicians, depending on what evidence you find, may be prosecutable. But the price inflation, the collusion, remember this is a decision which is made by the person who has the requisite monopoly on power and authority to make that decision. They may have made the wrong decision, but it's within their authority and scope and function mm. to actually do so. But we are going to pay so and so much for that delivery yes. of whatever it might be, even yeah. though it is 50% more than we could have got it elsewhere. Yeah, but they're the person but that's, who, yeah. Yeah, they're the person who has the discretion to do so. Yeah. And they may have followed all the procedures in doing so. And the other form of state capture was actually purely focused on that, on getting the right people who have the power, role, function, and authority to make those decisions or effect them to actually do so. And you just do those through malevolent influence. So it's not even improper. This is not even improper influence. This is malevolent influence. So the Guptas and their lieutenants were actually malevolent 
in manipulating and abusing the people who held that authority. So when they say, oh no, the Guptas, so remember Fikile and Balula sits and cries in an NEC meeting, why is the Guptas appointing cabinet? Well, the Guptas were not appointing cabinet. President Zuma was formally appointing cabinet under the influence of the Guptas. Maybe he didn't consult and was not under the influence of the ANC's top six or the alliance structures and so on. But that's your guy's private business. Don't make that our business. You didn't follow procedure in your internal processes. You deal with you it. You sort it out. You sort it out. For us as a citizenry, as a public, as a state, the formal decision is made by President Zuma. He appointed the cabinet. For the wrong reason, the wrong person, the wrong rationale, and under the influence. Here's the problem. It's the influence. But influence is not a crime. Everyone's a democracy is about mm. influence. Mm. So these guys use the influence in malevolent ways and the people who executed it because they had the authority to do so are the ones who are guilty. Take the case of the Vatikloff Air Force Base. Huh. That Bruce Kolowani guy. He pulls rank over Colonel Anderson who has very limited discretion and very limited authority only over a certain number of functions. And then impress people, he's got more monopoly of power, he's got more control, he's got more authority. He impresses upon her to allow a landing of this right? aircraft. Of this aircraft. Whether he uses President Zuma's name in a real sense or an imagined sense, or he just profited alluded about it, alluded to it. The thing is, she's taking it it, uh, she's taking uh, instruction from a superior and so she does it but she has to carry the can meanwhile this guy gets a light sanction and, and no, an ambassadorship no pay and suspension for a couple months and then an ambassadorship as you rightly say and then still continues as News24 points out this oak goes to the Netherlands and tries to broker deals for the Guptas there and there's News 24 articles which and, uh, and, and journalism which is kind of pointing this out. And it's only after that that he actually voluntarily resigns. So the Norwegians or something, wasn't there? Was some, I don't know. The Dutch. That was the Dutch. So the Zondo Commission is going to bring some of this stuff out to light. And that shines a light on the poor ethics, the public immorality... The erosion of the ethical base. Lack of accountability. Complete lack of accountability. Complete lack of responsiveness. Uh, abuse of power. Manipulation of institutions. Manipulation of processes. But you, what you're going to find is that the very people who had the authority to do so were the ones who were breaking the rules because they could, because it was in their discretion to do so and in their power to do so. And President Zuma was a great taskmaster at doing this. Because mm. every time he, you know, the ANC or the alliance's procedures and, pro and processes wouldn't allow him to do something, he would rely on the power of that's given to him as head of state as president of the republic. So when he say, I appoint cabinet, constitutionally, it's completely That's within it. his powers and functions to do so. Whether he listens to my advice, your advice, the advice of the ANC's top six, the advice of the alliance structures, or the Guptas. He listened in this case to the Guptas <laughs> and appointed... <laughs> He appointed on the basis of their influence, malevolent as it was. Right. 
when you think about Claudi Matsuereng at the SABC, I mean, the appointment of Claudi himself was the problem. But the tragedy is that some of these people genuinely believe that that's transformation. They genuinely believe that transformation is about giving opportunities to someone who simply would never have had the opportunity to do so. Now, it's true. By accident of history, it is unlikely that Mr. Mutsuneng would have had the opportunity to, to be CEO, right? But with application, with qualifications, with some experience, the right grooming, mentorship, coaching, whatever, there's every hope that it could have happened. And that's why I chose the Rugby World Cup as this, you know, you asked for a signal mm. political moment because mm. it shows that if you did those things, you could have had something. So real transformation would not be elevating Mr. Motsuneng to a position in which he was not fit and proper to be into that because that's not transformation. That's abusing the thing. But what does he do when he's there? He's the person, along with his lieutenants in the SABC, who have the authority to authorize expenditure of the SABC subsidizing the business broadcasts of the New Age, the Gupta newspaper company, and flighting it on their television station. So the SABC is carrying all the costs. But who's the people who approve this? It's not some corrupt, it's not you or I who suddenly went in and did it because we don't have the power to do so. The people who did have the power to do so did so. People who had the authority to do so did so under the influence of those malevolent people. Why? Because they were going to build in kickbacks and other. So, so the basic abrogation of your authority was what led to further acts of corruption down the line. Mm. And that's what the Zondo Commission is going to start or, or is bringing to light. Unpacking. Unpacking that. And the prosecutions might happen at levels slightly lower down rather than at the very top. Hmm. Uh, we need to finish up here. I know you're busy. Um, can you look ahead, look into your crystal ball? I mean, what do you anticipate will be sort of um, the big uh, events or moments to look out for next year? Consistent of this weather, I think my crystal balls clouded over. But you know, <laughs> what, we're looking, what we've got to look over in the next little while is is I mean two things. A, I think the significance of the of the British election um, in the coming two weeks is going to be important because it's going to determine the trajectory of what happens in Europe and. Europe's our large, South Africa's largest trading partner. Mm. So, in a in a in a practical sense, it uh, has implications for us. But even you know, if it goes the other way, all is not lost. It's not tragic. It's not a tragic loss. Even if there is a Brexit, a hard Brexit, because where else is Britain left to develop its markets? So it will reach whatever deals it does on tariffs and on other things with the EU. But in order to cultivate other markets, its easiest entry points are going to be the former Commonwealth countries mm. or former countries Colonies, which has yeah, got, yeah, got yeah. strong relations. Yeah. And we're among them. Now, the cost drivers in South Africa are high because we're far away and so on and so on. But the history and compatibility and so on is still there. And, the, and British investment sure. here and reciprocal South African investment there is pretty high. So it has advantages depending on how our trade negotiators and right. how our politicians go into this thing. So mm. I think that's going to be important. Mm. But it's also important for a more symbolic reason. And people like us who are slight 
slightly on the left of of the political spectrum, might see that with Corbyn, the kind of resurgence of honest politics, and maybe it's not gaining a lot of traction, but there is a certain romance and a certain predilection, I think, for that kind of authentic, honest politics. It may be overworthy because none of us are ever going to reach that level of goodness. Hmm. But there is something attractive and romantic about that honest politics, about that old set of conscientious beliefs that you remain wedded and committed to and hmm. you find creative ways of actually putting that out in the public. And I think that can only be good if you want to build a solidarity economy and if you want to build political and social solidarity across different identities and cleavages and so on. So I think that's important. How that's going to impact us, you know, I don't know. But if we look domestically, the EFF's conference this weekend will be important. Well, not so much for what its outcomes are, but for determining how and who it's going to relate to. Whether it's going to do the flip-flopping and continuing sort of combining with some opposition parties against the ANC at Parliament. And all of that is going to depend on what the ANC wants. Because the ANC may want to strike certain deals with the EFF in um, a desire to get things elsewhere. Hmm. So to get things in Joburg or Pretoria right. or Nelson Mandela Bay will depend on what concessions is prepared to give nationally. Hmm. And the EFF will want to know what it can get nationally for what concessions it's prepared to make locally. But similarly, that follows for the ANC and its relationship to the IFP, particularly what it's prepared to give in KZN and what it can get from it in Joburg. Yeah. Right. But the problem is that the IFP's presence would be restricted then to two places, Joburg as a city and KZN as, as a, a province. province. Mm. But there's a bigger part of the country and who's going to give you what elsewhere is likely the EFF. And like I say, if there's a combination between those two, I'm not sure that's terribly encouraging for the country mm. or for the society. It may be for those two organizations, yeah. but not for the country. Mm. And that will then, depending on the decision they make, will signal to us very clearly that these people genuinely think this democracy is about them. And it's not just the ANC and EFF who are like that. The DA is pretty much like that too. One of Zilla's most telling comments over the last month was saying perhaps, remember when she was elected or re-elected as the federal chair or inserted as the federal chair, mm. one of her comments she made was that one of the mistakes we made was for me to um, work on and try and get the ANC to believe that the DA is a genuinely non-racial party. And I sat back thinking... Why on earth do you want to convince the ANC? You must convince me. You've got to convince society because it's society. This, demo this democracy is about the voter, it's about the society, it's about the citizen. Convince them. You don't have to convince the other party. Ibrahim, mm -hmm. you've got a paper to write and then you've got a holiday to have. So um, thanks for your time today. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk to you again. I and uh, let's do it again in a couple of months. Thank you very much. Cheers, man. That was 
quite a, an intense, quite wide-ranging discussion. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I thought it was quite sweet that he did see the Rugby World Cup victory by the Springboks as a sort of major political event of 2019. But sort of seeing it rather in the context of a victory for social institutions that you know saw the emergence of many black players in their team. Um, yeah, so that was a nice moment for all of us, even though perhaps we don't feel the implications or impact uh, of it uh, right now. It was also, I think, interesting just to uh, that he touched on sort of the implications of Brexit and sort of possible trade negotiations with the UK or England, as it might be then, who knows, um, what that might uh, do for our economy. I would like to wish you all well for the holiday season. Be safe, have fun. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'll be back online in mid-January. Voices from SA is hosted on Audio Boom. You might also subscribe to Voices from SA via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public, Deezer, or indeed wherever you get your podcasts. Again, I'd like to mention the support of Hindenburg Systems for the editing software. Thanks, Chris Martis. Um, you can go to Hindenburg.com for more information about that particular software. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell the world. Until next time, I'm Nicholas Claude. Cheers.